Hi, everyone, and welcome to Pope Francis Generation. It's the show for Catholics struggling with the Church's teaching, who feel like they might not belong in the Church anymore, and who still hunger for a God of love and goodness. Your hosts are me, Paul Fahey, a professional catechist. And I'm Dominic, someone who needs catechesis. Together, we're taking our own look at the Catholic Church, her teachings and practices from three views that changed our world. And those are the Kerygma, the Doctrine of Theosis, and the teachings of Pope Francis. Together with you, we're the Pope Francis Generation. And today, we're extremely... Uh, excited to welcome Jordan Daniel Wood to the show. Welcome, Jordan. Good to have you with us. Great to be here. Thanks, guys. Yeah, All righty. Paul, what's the topic for today? This is going to be a good one. Yeah, so so the topic for today uh, is roughly going to be on St. Maximus the Confessor. So um, to introduce Jordan, uh, he's a stay-at-home dad of, of four young daughters. He entered the Catholic Church eight years ago. He holds a PhD in historical theology from Boston College. And when he's not changing diapers and making school lunches, he's currently working on two translation projects. He's also the author of the book, The Whole Mystery of Christ, Creation as Incarnation in Maximus Confessor. And that's um, it's kind of where we're going to focus focus the discussion today. Jordan, I'm really excited to talk with you face-to-face instead of just over chat. It's great to be here. Great to see you, Paul. Um, I first came across your work a little over a year ago. I was listening to... Uh, an interview you did on on the Particular Good podcast, which that's the only episode of that podcast I've ever listened to. And I don't know how I came across it, but someone must have shared it. And I saw it and I'm like, that looks interesting. Um, and I remember I remember listening to it because it's like two hours long. <laughs> uh, and you're talking about your book about Maximus the Confessor. And I was I was making Christmas cookies. And there were times where I'd have to pause it and then like rewind like five minutes and be like, what were they talking about again? <laughs> um, I've listened to it through like two or three times. And I still only understand about half of, of what, what you were talking about. Um, <laughs> but the half that I understood was really compelling. So um, I want to start by asking you like, uh, what you're an adult convert to Catholicism. What brought you to the faith? And what brought you to Maximus the Confessor? Yeah, I think it's a good place to start because it sort of informs the whole trajectory. <clears throat> I was raised in a um, in a Christian household and in a tradition that was very, I think the shortest way to say it is so Protestant that they didn't consider themselves Protestant. It's just like Christian and, you know, you got the Bible and it's very low church. And so um, lots of emphasis on scripture. Um, not a lot of awareness generally of any kind of historical precedent or that they are in a tradition. Um, but my whole family is still there and I, I got a lot of good things from that tradition and from that upbringing. I actually went to a Bible college in that tradition, you know, devoted, <laughs> I was an 18 year old taking, you know, biblical Greek at 7am, four days a week, you know, and taking like entire, like two semester course on the book of Acts, you know, um, so lots of scripture for which I'm still grateful. I mean, I like getting very familiar with the scriptural text was useful. Being made to study the original languages was very useful, but as one does when they start actually doing those things and doing it in earnest, uh, you start to notice things that cause you to question. <laughs> um, and so that's actually a pretty, I think, decent insight into where, kind of where I came from and where I'm still at, where I'm going, because, because for me, it never made sense to have faith unless I saw it as my own faith. Mm-hmm. It never really made sense to say something was true unless I could see its truth. Like it wouldn't make sense to say, 
um, you know, to look at something like a beautiful sunset and, and act like I need to put it into propositional form or, or tell you who's standing right next to me that it's beautiful. All you have to do is look at it. Right. And so that's what I was always after. And I still think to this day, that's what I'm after. So anyway, studying the scriptures, I, I naturally have questions and questions. They can sometimes be, you know, as we, anyone who has parents or who is a parent knows, Sometimes questions can be just for the sake of annoying the the authority. Yes, often. often. <laughs> Some, sometimes they can be not in goodwill. Sometimes they can be diversions, but also they can be, um, you know, signs of of faith. Actually, like trust. Um, and and so that's that's what I was trying to make it into. And I'm sure I swerved in and out of different modes of questioning, but. So I wanted to see the truth for myself. If, if this was the word of God written, if this was authoritative, this was infallible or an in, inerrant as, as I was taught, um, mostly according to, for those that know, you know, mostly according to like the Chicago statement on inerrancy, um, then, then certain things need to be explained. I mean, it's so, so I started asking questions and some of the answers were good, but generally I was getting dissatisfied. So, Interestingly, then I had heard tell of uh, the the fact that perhaps the way I was being taught to read scripture wasn't in, not, was not only not the dominant way it was read in most of uh, Christian history, both patristic and medieval eras, but in fact would have been would have been sort of problematic for a lot of deep. But I didn't know much about that. So honestly, my foray in, foray into what you might call the greater Christian tradition really was from reading scripture, which in some ways kind of makes sense. I mean, that's sort of, in, in a rough sketch, that's kind of the way actually the history of the development of doctrine and tradition works. You you have the early church, you've got these texts being written, you've got them being interpreted, there's lots of strife, disagreement, a, attempt to hold together the unity. And it really, it's from meditating out of those, you know, all the great if you go take a survey of, say, early Christianity, you're going to go through all these sort of controversies. And here's the side. And here's the side. Here's what they were saying about Jesus. Here's the response. But you'll notice in all of these treatises and all these writings, they're really commenting scripture. They're interpreting scripture. Uh, what do you say about Jesus when he says the father is greater than I? Right. So you can't. So scripture is not just the place where you ask questions and get answers. It's the place where questions arise in, in a new way. And so that that was like fascinating to me. And so I I thought, you know, I'm going to go on to grad school and I'm going to focus on the it's called the era of the fathers, the patristic era. And really, though, my question still is, why did they read scripture the way that they did rather than other ways, including the one I was taught? Like, I really wanted to know. Why did they think they could do this to scripture? <laughs> why does why do they allegorize Noah's Ark? You know, like what like, like very specific, like why did they what what gave them the right? You know, so I I, I did a master's degree and I, I devoted a lot of my time and energy in writing to origin of Alexandria. Uh, sort of the, the guy you, you know, I I sort of heard this the guy you go to, both because he's sort of problematic and the extremes to which he's willing to go when he figuratively interprets scripture, but also because he kind of is massively influential on both East and West church fathers and beyond in the way he interprets scripture. I mean, as you all, as you all know, I mean, even those that sort of turn their, 
back on origin uh, are, are also at the same time borrowing his interpretation to scripture when they write their commentaries on on scripture so uh so he was the place to go so i i went there i i, I worked with a, a scholar of origin and um yeah really was trying to answer that question why does origin think what are what are the theological reasons he thinks he can spiritually interpret scripture so my whole foray into the greater Christian tradition was about hermeneutics and understanding scripture. And then sort of by proxy, other things get added, right? Like, uh, what is revelation anyway? Divine revelation. What, what does it mean that it's, that it's uh, you know, uh, revealed in time? What about the historical circumstances? What about the constant conversation that tradition sort of is uh, around the revelation? How does all this relate to the God-man incarnate in the middle of history and so forth? So I really was very much influenced by the what, what later scholars call the Alexandrian Christian tradition, that sliver of the tradition that was uh, comes from St. Clement. I call him St. Clement uh, because uh, he is a saint in the Eastern churches. St. Clement and um, and Origen and, um, and all the way through up, you know, the Cappadocian Fathers and ultimately where we are today, you know, St. Maximus. So when I did my PhD at Boston College, I actually didn't intend I was going to work on the Cappadocians. Um, but then I, I took one course on Maximus. I read, read him for three weeks. I think it only took two or three weeks. And I was convinced like, okay, this is, this is where I have to go. Because in my mind, the point of graduate school was to apprentice myself to the master, to a master in this Christian tradition. And there's, there's a whole bunch of them you can choose from, of course. But I kind of thought like on analogy to say an artist or something or a sculptor who's trying to get better. And what do you do? You you repeat the works, you try to reproduce the works of the masters, and you eventually can, of course, go on and add your own signature and your own flair. But um, but you need to sort of there's it's it's like an Aristotelian point, right? It's uh you, you can't just learn the theory or whatever. You gotta you gotta follow after you gotta imitate. Yeah. So that's what I decided to do. And Maximus was the one who kind of caught my spirit. And I think I think, and as our conversation I'm sure will reveal, like I think part of that was because. That is his disp his disposition resonated so deeply with me towards seeking after the mysteries, towards ever new, more profound understandings of what has been revealed, towards an openness to question me. Most of his work is actually in question answer format, like questions he actually received from people. He doesn't he doesn't usually just sit out to write a treatise. He's responding to questions. So that really captivated me. And um yeah, so that's sort of how, and then along the way there, I spent, I, my wife and I spent a year in France, we started, she was raised Catholic, so there was always that kind of root there, uh, but but her family had left the Catholic Church, and so when we were in France, we started attending Mass uh, with actually a few friends who were seminarians from India, and we would go to their seminary and eat with them, and we met people, and you know, and uh, yeah, it was something, something about that year, that by the time I got to Boston, I, I was pretty sure that uh, I would enter the Catholic Church, and that's what I did uh, about eight years ago. Yeah. How was um? So it sounds like too parallel, but I mean, they still interact with each other. You have this this academic growth, but also this more personal conversion. So like, um, how how did that look? Did you go to like the local parish and be like, "Hey, I'm a PhD student in <laughs> patristics, um, and I want to join the Catholic." church yeah what did it look like yeah it was interesting i was uh um and you know for those that know me would probably get a kick out of this i mean the, the church i be I, I entered the parish i entered the catholic church in was a dominican run parish <laughs> uh, 
in Providence, Rhode Island. And actually, I worked with the Dominicans. I get along with Dominicans. You know, I love Meister Eckhart. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But uh, no, uh, no. The, actually, the priest, the Dominican priest that was sort of overseeing my entry to the church was awesome. He was great. And one thing he impressed upon me was that when you come into the Catholic Church, especially from another Christian tradition, you're not you're not really supposed to leave behind what was good. And you should think of it more as you're bringing into the church the riches, which I'm going to now borrow from Balthazar, Hans Urs and Balthazar, the riches that had been sort of scattered in the fragmentation of the body of Christ. Yeah. So that was very encouraging. So, you know, it is true that like my interest in the fathers, you know, wasn't the same as like, say, Henri de Lubac or some of the great Catholic theologians. It was for me, it really was like an organic. I'm trying to make sense of scripture. That's because that's all I was raised on. Scripture itself asked it asked questions of itself, as it were, in front of me. And I and they became my questions. And so I really did turn to the fathers out of that whole biographical background. And they were like existentially helpful for me. It's not just an act. It was so that's the thing. It was never just an academic thing for me. It's and that's the whole way I approach theology even to this day and to the chagrin of some perhaps or it's never because and I always say this. I don't know why anybody does theology except to keep your faith. I'm looking for vitality of my faith. I'm not looking for the master key. I'm not looking to prove anyone wrong all the time. I'm not saying I know everything. I'm trying to understand how in this time and place I can still have a faith that's my own and that's alive. And that does involve asking questions and getting different answers, sometimes thinking totally differently from a different vantage. And so if you can't do that, your faith is dead. So, so, so for me, the fathers were like, that they were doing that they were sources you know we talk about in the french catholic right well that's the point it's a source that's like a it's like springs fresh water so it needs to nourish you it doesn't remain water because it goes into your body and it becomes your body just sort of like the eucharist right but um and so that's that's what they were for me so he recognized that the priest did the dominican priest and was just like great good we need that. And, and like, yeah, we've also been doing that ourselves for quite a while. Like, okay, it's not like you're the only one doing that, which I which I know. But but I am the only one doing it for my exact reasons because I am not just any other person. We're all doing it for our own reasons. So, so that was – it's just always been integrated for me. I, in fact, I remember being in Bible college and staying up very late on Friday nights working on exegetical term papers – uh, and my friends were like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, this is, this is like, and it's again, it's, it, but the, the point wasn't, oh, because I'm super, I'm super smart. I'm a great student and I'm blah, blah, blah. It was because like, even then as an 18, 19, 20 year old, I was trying to keep my faith. So that's why I'm doing it. It's like, why do you drink water? You know? So, so that, so that's because you want to live. That's why. So like, uh, so that's always been what it's been. I've never, and I remember even had telling a friend, a, a great friend, I, I, I was standing in the hallway and I had to say, look, I know this doesn't make sense perhaps to you, but for me, um, I don't separate school from my spirit. Like their spiritual life, academic life, these are terms we use, but they're all flat and two-dimensional and it doesn't really make sense to me. Yeah, I, I resonate with that. There have been times where I have just 
I mean, and now as a part of school, and maybe I justified it because I worked at a parish, but it really, it wasn't for that, where I would just furiously read encyclical after encyclical looking for answers because I had questions. It wasn't like someone else had questions and I should probably know this. It was like, I need to know this or I don't know. How, I mean, sometimes it was, I need to know this or I don't know how I can stay in the church. Right. Like I need an answer. Um, and that's what drove the pursuit. Um, it kind of reminds me of, which is probably cliche now, the, uh, um, in, in the Eastern tradition, uh, the saying that the theologian is the one who prays. Yeah. There's a sense of like theology is an academic pursuit divorced from one's personal relationship with God. Um, like that's the most important thing. That's the central yeah. thing. Yeah, exactly. And that's why, you know, his famous essay, Theology and Sanctity, Hundreds von Balthasar, that's the whole point of it. Now, I think there are, you know, of course, and I've had to learn this. This is part of the maturation process. And I'm certainly not there yet. <laughs> but of course, the, the, the other side is that if you're so earnest, you can't really hold anything lightly, right? Because it's all, everything's all on the line. And actually, that's more what I experienced in my childhood tradition. It's like, and that was partly because I felt like we were sort of lost at sea or sort of floating. And so every single issue or controversy or disagreement or new question is like rehashing everything, all the essentials all over again. It was just too much pressure. It's too much fear. And anybody that, that has been truly afraid knows when you are afraid, you've you've got no wits. Yeah. And so if you've got no wits, you can't see anything that's true. So I was like, okay, well, um, I also need to learn that side, right? I need to you there's a way in which, and I think I think the fathers and I think some of the, the best theologians have done this, where you can be deadly serious and totally existentially invested in this whole thing. But that doesn't mean you have to be overly serious about yourself. And that's a that's a fine line. And it's one that, it, you know, we all to one degree or another successfully walk. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, totally. But at, but at the end of the day, you know, they are they are connected. They're intimately connected. So I'm totally I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. Um, so we should we should talk about Maximus for a bit then um, before I. I mean, listen to that podcast and have followed you. I knew I knew that St. Maximus was a person who existed <laughs> um, sometime in the early, early church, like the patristic area. That was it. That was all that I knew. Um, so who is St. Maximus and why should we care about him? Yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, St. There are three different versions of his life. None of them. Uh, none of them agree on all, all the best saints have multiple uh, versions. Yes, yes, especially one like Maximus. Who, one of the versions written that's preserved in Syriac is like very anti-Maximus. So, so it's peppered with like, well, first of all, he was born as a bastard child, and then he was put on the steps of a monastery which was full of heresy. And, you know, so it's like uh, uh, I don't know if that's really. However, actually, a lot of scholars think that. On, on like the basic origin story that he was born in Palestine, for example, or raised there, you know, he was, uh, maybe it's actually right. Anyway, that's a bunch of nerd stuff. But um, let's just say uh, what we do know is this: St. Maximus, his dates are around 580 to 662. So you're talking later, later patristic era. So even some, by some reckoning, it's like medieval already, you know, for the more classical, you know, post-Augustine is medieval uh, reckoning. But in the East, it's, in the East, really, uh, St. Maximus, along with like St. John of Damascus, were more or less viewed as, you know, um, 
kind of the pinnacle of the of the patristic uh, tradition of, of the East. And Maximus, one way or the other, um, he he for one thing, he was a lay monk. He he was one of these church fathers who you know he didn't hold an office. He wasn't even a priest. Um, he wasn't a bishop, of course, then or or anything like that. He didn't have any formal. Uh, uh, ecclesiastical power, anything like that, which is remarkable because his, he was by the end of his life as an 80 year old, he's so well respected and also feared that, you, you know, um, his enemies, including the emperor and some very high up church leaders, you know, wanted him just to shut up and stuff in their eyes, causing controversy. And when he wouldn't do it, wouldn't budge on Christological beliefs, um, you know, they cut off his right hand so he couldn't write letters anymore, and they cut out his tongue so he couldn't speak anymore. As an eighty-year-old man, he dies as a confessor. Then, uh, from from the uh, torture he un underwent, so he dies about eighty as an eighty-two-year-old man. Um, and so, nineteen years after his death, an ecumenical council was convened um, in six eighty one, and his views are uh, which which made the main controversy is whether or not Christ has one or two wills. I know to us that might sound very like hair splitting, like what what <laughs> somebody was tortured and killed for this. Of course, there's politics as always, so it's not like it's only what was going on. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he was. When he thought something was so fundamental to the truth, he was he was one of those that was stubborn enough to stick to it no matter what. But in 19, yeah, 19 years after his death, he's vindicated, and you know later on he's canonized. And in the I would say to, even to this day, I mean really steadily since his death, Saint Maximus is considered basically a pillar of, of orthodoxy in the East, hugely you know very important, venerated uh, uh, Saint Gregory Palamas, you know talks about and interprets Maximus of the time. And, and the, so in the Eastern Orthodox churches, Maximus has kind of always been a big deal. Um, in the West, it's a little more complicated. And in fact, parts of the story of, of the reception and legacy of Maximus in the West are really murky even now. We do know that Maximus was translated into Latin in the ninth century by a guy named John Scotus Ariugena. Won't get into all his story. He's also himself a brilliant thinker, but controversial. Um, what exactly becomes of those translations? I don't know. Some of that stuff is really murky. Uh, but Maximus is known mainly in the West to like St. Thomas Aquinas and, and Bonaventure and some of the scholastics as the commentator on Dionysius the Areopagite because he wrote scolia or comments or glosses on the whole of uh, Dionysius, pseudo Dionysius's corpus. And so anyway, they only kind of knew of him through that, but it was all vague in the East or in the West. Until the, the 20th century, really, last century, um, you got major interest in Maximus, especially, I think, most noteworthy of all is Hans Ruth von Balthasar, mm -hmm. once again, writes his book, Cosmic Liturgy, uh, first version, 1941, second, 1962. So uh, that book was hugely important. And um, yeah, and, uh, and, and Balthasar makes use of him all the time. You get a lot of different engagement. Um, really across the ecumenical spectrum uh, from like the mid mid 20th century on even in the Western Protestants and Catholics and a lot of people. So I actually think now the thing is about Maximus is that though he's so he didn't even his work didn't even his main works didn't receive a full English translation until about seven years ago. So he's 
his star is still rising here in the West. So, so there's a reason I knew nothing about him. Yes, yes, you're not culpable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were ignorant. No, so, uh, yeah, so like, and that's still going. I'm, I'm working on you know, translating 40, his 49 letters, which is still only two of which have ever been translated into English. And so anyway, all that stuff is like still ongoing. He's still kind of being recognized. But I think now anybody that's seriously familiar with Maximus's work, it really doesn't hesitate to say not only was he just one of the most brilliant church fathers or in the patristic era, really, really of the whole Christian tradition. Mm. Uh, I've, I've, I've more than once I've seen people compare him to, you know, to uh, like Aquinas and some of these other great Lumen Augustine, you know, as as basically, you know, in potency on par with them. So from what you understand, how does a lay monk with no training um <laughs> be an Aquinas level um, exegete? Okay, so that's that's a great question. And I'm not going to satisfy you <laughs> with a good answer because part of it's the problem of his biographical details. They're all over the place. But honestly, even just understanding his education, like how, how is it that he seems to be... That, so, you know, for example, the some manuscripts that circulated with his works, they would include uh, this very sort of detailed and schematized uh, charts and stuff of Aristotelian logic, usually mediated through the guy named Porphyry. So like very, and so some people have speculated that Maximus himself maybe had written this up, like a commentary on the, the organon, the logic, the, the categories um, of Aristotle, like basic logic, but others um, maybe, maybe someone added it. It doesn't matter. The point is somebody thought if you're going to understand this guy, you need like a lesson in logic you know, because it gets very subtle. So like, how did he, how did he get to that? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I have no answer for that. So he's kind of an anomaly or there's a lot of mystery about who he is. Yeah, there really is. Yeah. And it's growing. <laughs> um, his story relates to it's something else I want to talk with you about. Um, a couple of months ago, uh, Pope Francis in one of his, it was he was addressing some like theological society <clears throat> and he distinguishes theology and catechesis. So uh, so I'm a catechist, right? And the vocation, even the word catechist is to echo down. Mm -hmm. There's a sense of like when I'm functioning as a catechist, I'm sharing with people something that isn't my own. Right. I'm echoing down a message or word that isn't mine, um, which is different than the vocation of the theologian. Um, so Pope Francis says that uh, um that theologians like need to take risks and go further and that it's the magisterium that ultimately may or may not stop them depending on where the theologian goes but that there's a um there's a sense of venturing out um mm -hmm. the theologian does that a catechist doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. and it sounds like in maximus's life that's what he was doing and was persecuted for it and eventually you know vindicated for it after he dies which is you know <laughs> that kind of stinks, but um, so yeah. I guess what are your thoughts on that? Like, you're you're a theologian. You're you're not a catechist. Um, so what is that? What does the vocation of catechist mean to you? Yeah, and it's I for for one thing, I completely agree with it, and I think this is a fundamental distinction, and I think it's one that's basically lost most of the time in discourse. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I don't. You know, I'm not putting the blame on any particular. It's just it just is. And it's something I had to think about even as because I not only did I I taught for two years uh, college level 
And so you're doing a bunch of intro classes to students that are nominally Catholic, barely, barely care, just take it. They have to take the course. So there's the question of how do you, and that, that I felt more, that was interesting because I felt on the one hand, more like there's a catechesis obligation here. Like we just need to get some of the facts straight, like just basic things, definitions. On the other hand, and I don't, you would have to tell me more about all of the nature of catechesis. Okay. So I'm not going to speak into that, but how do you say this? So I structured my course around five questions. So the course was, was questions. The whole feel of it was seeking. How far can we go? What can we say? What are the options here? You know, is, is this the only way to understand this? What are the implications? Have they even been totally thought through? Um, and actually the students loved it. And it's not because I'm some great teacher. It's because they didn't know that this was even a part of the church. They had no idea. I, I can't tell you how many times I heard that. And I wasn't saying any, I never came out and said, here's something I, you know, I dissent on or whatever. I, I never even said anything like that. They already had their own opinions about all kinds of stuff, of course, just by default. But I think it wasn't so much about where anyone landed on particular hot button issues or whatever. It was just the fact that this was a, that the, like, and I have to say, I resonate with this as someone who came into the church as an adult, because what I was looking for was a space where that was, where it could be handled. Where questions were yes welcomed. Yes, because they're not always signs of rebellion. They're signs of faith. I don't, my kids don't ask me questions if they don't believe I care. The only reason why they ask me questions, unless if they're just annoying me, <laughs> uh, but but if they really have a, an actual question, like right, they're looking out, or they heard something on on a movie, or they or somebody at school said something, or or they see some homeless guy out there, you know, and they're asking, they ask, who do they ask? They ask me, not because I know everything, I you know, even though I joke with them, I do, and all that, and they're like, no, you don't, but they ask me fundamentally. It's it's a sign of trust. I want to ask you. And, and the thing is, they don't just trust me to have the answers. Most of the time, they actually don't care ultimately if I have the answers right away or clear, in a clear way. What they care about is, A, that, I'm, that they're being heard. And B, that I will be honest about my own limitations. I'm not going to lie to them or dissemble or oversimplify, even though I have to sometimes you know, to reach to that level. But sometimes I have to say, look, I, I don't know. That's a great question. I hope you find that out. So that is a sign of warmth. It's a, I mean, it's a sign. And sometimes I get the feeling, I think, sadly, there, there's some spaces I get the feeling where that's just lost. And I have to say, a lot of the nominal college students that I thought, and we're all worried about college students going off and losing their faith and stopping. Okay, well, one thing you can do is stop telling them that Theology is about just regurgitating everything and everything's been found out. I would rather go with a great theologian like Karl Rahner, who said, if all you do is repeat the formulas, you haven't understood them. If you really understand something, you don't even need to say the formula because you know it so well. You've thought through the implications so, so much. You could use a totally different language and still get the idea across because ideas aren't bound to language that way. Right. Yeah. So anyway, but um I'm sort of going off a little bit here <laughs> on a manifesto, but uh, um, so yeah, the distinction. So I think the distinction is crucial is the point and actually showing people that there is a distinction is, is, is often inviting and exciting because they didn't even know that that was a side of it. 
I'm thinking, especially here, and we'll get, I'll get to Maxus and how he personified, or he how really, uh, I'd say, incarnated this. Um, um, Pope Francis, in the, the latest Ratio Fundamentalis, you know, from like 2016, there's a part in there, I think it's around like section 168 or something, where he says that theology, the fu fundamental to the vocation of the theologian is to, quote, penetrate more deeply into the mysteries of salvation and grasp the connection between them by speculative investigation. Okay, speculative. Let's stop with that word real quick. Doesn't mean guessing, right? It's from the mid, it's from Latin speculum, mirror, right? From the Middle Ages and something that's a speculative science is you're trying to behold fundamentally the truth and the beauty. And so sometimes you have to use mirrors to get different angles. We, we only ever see things in two dimensions, truly, right? So you can't see all the way around uh, anything at once. So you can use mirrors. You can use mirrors to look sight. You want to look at an eclipse. You got to sort of do it indirectly. So you use mirrors. You look into these things and you find different reflections, different angles on this, and you do it not because it's useful or because you could turn it into a technology or something. You do it because it's inherently worthwhile, just like you look at the beautiful sunset. <laughs> That's why you look at it because it is beautiful. And you only see that it's beautiful because you look at it. And these are just the same event, really. And that's, that is what I think Pope Francis is suggesting there or intimating there. And so here's, here's the thing I would say, and not, not only do I agree with that distinction, but I think if you don't hold the distinction and you don't see that the speculative is different from the catechesis, just getting sort of the ducks in a row, which, which is fundamental. Nobody's, they don't have to be opposed at all. They're, they're not opposed. But if you don't have people going beyond and say, well, how, more, how much more deeply can we see? Is that all there is here? Is there a different way to, to look at this issue or this thing or this truth? If you're not doing that, I would go further and say you're actually not receiving the tradition. So I think it's a lot. I think it's I think it's part of the vitality of Christian faith tradition and being Catholic. That's what attracted me to the Catholic faith in the first place. Reading Fides et Ratio and saying the Pope, the, the leader of the largest religious body in, in the world, is actually pleading with our age to believe more deeply and courageously in reason, shocked me. And fascinated me, especially around sections 105 and 106 there. I love those. Um, and that that won me over. And I'm not saying it won everybody over. I'm a, I'm a weird person. I mean, yeah, thanks. So uh, I'm attracted to weird things. But no, that's no, but it's um, that was like, that's what I'm looking for, right? Again, it's not all the answers. It's it's not just that you're allowed to ask questions if we feel like we are we we want to permit you. It's that asking questions, actively seeking is is the act of receiving. Yeah. Okay. So I have a few different things. Um, yeah. See, <laughs> yeah. See if I can I can put it in one thing. Um, is it Thomas Aquinas who says that theology is faith seeking understanding? Well, so that's actually a verse. Let me back from the Book of Isaiah. Okay. Uh, Anselm makes it famous. Anselm. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, it's not faith that has all the answers, right? There's there's an idea of seeking, um, which means questioning, which means venturing. Okay. So th th that was something that made sense. But also, so you you mentioned Fides uh, Arazio. Um, I was just at a lecture earlier this week, an old history professor of mine talking about the relationship that different Christians had in the 
um, 17 and 1800s to the Enlightenment. And how some of them had a disposition of fear mm -hmm. and some of them had a disposition of engagement. Mm -hmm. um, obviously arguing that like engagement's the better disposition for a Christian to have. Um, and I think fear is always the wrong disposition. And I think mm -hmm. that that's um, what I see a lot of in Catholic culture, at least the circles I'm in, is a fear of engaging with secular ideas as if they're going to contaminate me and not what is true, um, uh, what can help me understand more. Um, but I also see a fear of even, even the mystery of God to some extent, yeah. um, an inability to just contemplate that God is so much bigger, that his mystery is just so much beyond the, uh, I, I think of like, if the mystery of God's an ocean, we're playing in the tide pools. Um, yeah. Yeah. but like, so I'm, I've only seen the ocean a couple of times, but I live in Michigan and I've been up to, uh, the, to the upper peninsula and looked at Lake Superior. I've been up there in the winter and Lake Superior in the winter is terrifying. Like you stand on the edge of it and the whole thing creaks because of the ice and it's so big. It's terrifying. Mm -hmm. The bigness of it is terrifying. Um, I think that like, there's a fear of getting lost in the mystery of God, a fear mm -hmm. of like entering into that. So we stay in the comfort of the answers that we're already sure of. Yes. Um, so yeah, that's something that compelled me about uh, the things that I see you writing and I see you saying is you don't seem to have a fear of the mystery of God. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's the right disposition to have. Um, it reminds me of uh, uh Francis, before he was Pope, he said something similar, but, but Benedict as Pope said something like, um, truth isn't something we possess. Truth is the person of Jesus Christ. Yes. Um, yes. Truth is greater than the answers that we give it. So I don't know. That's a lot of things. No, no, that's, I mean, so I once taught a course on unbelief or like the, the problem of religious belief in modernity in the modern era with a great friend of mine. It was like one of my favorite times I ever got to teach anything. We got to create the course. It was really fun. The first lecture I gave was trying to, trying to get out in front of this. Cause here's, here's the thing. This, <laughs> every single aspect of human knowledge and inquiry, the, the, the horizons are not just receding and expanding. They're doing so beyond imagination. That is not going away. You're not going to hide that from people. We, we do have a thing called the internet. People can, people can, you know, I know teenagers. I also taught high school. Okay. So I know teenagers, they, you know, if they're not on Instagram and like, you know, looking at totally useless things, uh, they could, if they're interested, you know, watch a 15 minute video on quantum theory. It's all out there, man. Like you're not going to hide anymore. Like the horizon is open. The veil has been pulled back. The scroll is pulled back. You cannot sit there and pretend like that's that is here's the thing. I came from a tradition where I saw a lot of people who believed that the Bible was inerrant and what they what they thought that meant. And I'm going to just say it because why not? I'm not afraid or whatever. <laughs> right. Uh, they once they found out that there was a myth, you know, that predated, uh, say, Exodus in Mesopotamia about a king who, who, when he was a, a born baby, his mom was, they were under persecution. And so he, he put, he put, she put the baby in the basket and it went down the, 
the river. And then actually the king of, of that Mesopotamian city, or I mean the, a daughter in the court of that Mesopotamian city picked him up and raised him. And then actually he became the, the greatest king of, right? Okay. I mean, I remember sitting across a professor who's awesome Hebrew, great linguist. And I was reading this thing and I was like, I just found this. And I said, can you explain this to me? Like what's going on here? And he wouldn't say anything. And I love this guy. He wouldn't say anything. He would he would he just turned red and didn't address it. Okay, so I had to leave. It challenged his answers. It challenged his answers. And and all I saw in that moment, in a brilliant, otherwise brilliant guy and what he taught was fear. And I see it immediately. And if you see it, you know, hold on a second. It's not that you have to have all the answers. It's again back to that you know parent-child thing. At least tell me your limitations so I can trust. And that's, this is so, I opened up this class. I know I'm jumping everywhere. But I opened up this class on just, all I did was go through receding horizons in the past 100 years. About 120 years ago, we thought the Milky Way was the only galaxy. Now we see 2 trillion. What's a galaxy? Well, let's go over that. And I go into all the dimensions, right? Uh, 150 years ago, we didn't even know what an electron was. They didn't even know why the sun kept burning and didn't burn out. Okay, now we know about nuclear fission and fusion and have done bad things with it, of course. But right. So and you could do that. Everything. What about history? You know, and I'm going to just assume this is OK for for people that. But, you know, our version of Hope Sapiens has been around for 60,000 years. Guess how much writing we have from like maybe four or five, six thousand for lucky. What was going on? Right. Everywhere you look, the the, the, the horizons are receding. You can't turn that back. I was just reading today again from Ronner. Sorry to pull on the Ronner all the time, <laughs> but he has this great line where he says, it makes no sense to be modern on purpose. All you can do is believe that God can pour his grace, even on our age, as he has to all sinners. That's exactly right. So, so the first thing, my actual answer finally is, is uh, the reason why I don't think you can be fearful is because it's totally useless. No, you're not going to trick anyone by just being afraid all the time. They will see the things, the truth, right? But I think the deeper second reason is because, because the truth we fundamentally believe is a person. Jesus didn't just come and right, um, tell us truths. He said he is the truth. So, so the truth is a person, not an idea. That's the thing. Yeah, we find that in John Paul II, Ratzinger, uh, Pope Benedict, I mean, the 16th. See that in Francis all the time. It's an old idea. It's fundamental to Maximus's Christology, right? All that stuff, and that's something that really is um, central for us Christians and for Catholics. Is that we we worship, we receive the body and blood of the truth at Mass. We don't just receive words about that are true, like propositions. So that's deeper, and you can never put into words a person. You can only say words around or about a person. So that so so the mystery isn't the Christian mystery doesn't take the form of we don't know yet, although sometimes it does. The Christian mystery is is a positive form of we know that the truth is mysterious because we know the truth as a person. Yeah. So there's not an option there. Number you know for for this and so the second part of this is that not only do I think fear is useless, but I also think fear is unfaithful. Because, because if you're afraid, right, perfect love casts out fear because, and, and perfect love comes from true faith. 
right? It, and so um, I think if you believe that Jesus is the truth, you have absolutely nothing to fear from any truths being revealed. Yeah. Um, I think of, I've, I've had this image for a few years now. I think of uh, C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, where I think it's the line, the witch in the wardrobe, um, where um, someone's asking about Aslan. And I think the beaver says, uh, he's not a tame lion. There's a sense of like, um, <clears throat> if, if the word of God, if Jesus Christ is truth, then why are we so like focused on defending it? Why aren't we just like letting it out? Right? Like, yeah. what do we have to fear? Right. Jordan, you and I were chatting last week and kind of laughing about something that's taken me 10 years to realize. Um, as a sidebar, this is exactly why I started a community, Smart Catholics, well, so I could sit in on conversations like this. But no, <laughs> more, more importantly, the what I struggle with um, being traditionalist Catholic and then loving sacred scripture and reading the early books of Genesis, and then at the same time loving history and science, and then realizing I, I can't get them to match. I don't understand how this isn't fitting the scientific record, the historical record, and yet this is true. And I don't, I don't know how to, so, so many things having to then be re-examined and re-studied. And it's not, the big challenge that I had was I didn't have a framework for discovering truth. I only had a framework for, as you've kind of said, regurgitating the formulas uh, and then towing the line. So heading out into the fringes and into the frontiers of knowledge, uh, which just it became so blindingly obvious what you kept saying that the frontier of knowledge just keeps expanding at an exponential rate in the la every five years now we're now building time crystals for quantum computing like what yeah. does that even mean right right so as you said there's a clock that can't be turned back and we don't yet have a framework for how to be faithful and fearless uh with this with this frontier so like i said it took me 10 years to to understand this very simple idea but it's the core reason why smart Catholics, I think, is it's something that's passionate to me and why these conversations are valuable, that Christianity does not have a monopoly on the truth, and nor does it have a monopoly on the person of Christ. Mm -hmm. Because we keep encountering them in all kinds of other traditions, in other disciplines, and as we encounter them, they reveal new things to us that we never had the opportunity to consider before. Um, so, back over to you. Yeah, and exactly. I mean, can anybody really say that they can monopolize a person? <laughs> That's just called oppression and tyranny. And it actually always fails, ultimately. You can't control what somebody feels and thinks and knows in them. In them, You can control their bodies. You can do all this stuff. And so, again, a massive implication of the fact that the truth isn't just something Jesus said, but is himself speaking. The truth speaks, not just is spoken. If the truth speaks, we know, so this is the paradox, right? We know that we can't know that in some kind of sort of control or mastery. That's not a guess. That's not a, oh, I'm just, my, my mind is finite. Actually, we should be courageous because Paul said, you have the mind of Christ and you have the spirit that searches even the depths of God. And he does that in you. So, so actually, there's no limit to what you can know. St. Maximus more boldly says that when we are deified, you guys said theosis right at the beginning, when we are deified, he says we will actually know creation exactly in the same way God does. Well, isn't that isn't that St. Paul as well? We'll see God as he is. 
We'll see him as he is, and then we will also see the whole cosmos as God knows it. And the way God knows it, according to Exodus and another text, is as his own loving will. So we won't just know it by inspection or theory. We will know it as almost, as it were, our own desire. That's a, so intimate. That's so almost, again, beyond words. Um, and so that's the other interesting thing about all this. This is sort of a bolstering point, but it kind of I think it goes with what we've been saying. You know, one of the early lessons I learned when I turned to the greater tradition, because I had questions about script, inspired scripture, etc. One of the things that really was compelling to me already in the second century, church fathers are saying, well, one reason why we can read these texts figuratively, you know, and they differed on their assessment of the literal or whatever, what even is literal and all that. But let's just say one reason why you can allegorize or read it figuratively or spiritually is actually exactly because it's inspired. And if it's inspired, it's divine. If it's divine, it's infinite because the divine is infinite. It doesn't mean any interpretation goes, but it does mean all the interpret the number of interpretations that do go are infinite. And so one thing I've often wondered, I've only seen like one, and maybe I'm, I just might be my own ignorance here, but I've only seen one theologian make this connection. I mean, if the tradition is divine, why should it be limited in what it can mean? So it's the very thing I learned about scripture. And the, re the reason why we as Catholics can hold scripture and tradition together, we don't need to make them antagonistic, is exactly because the truth is a person, which is to say the truth is infinite as person. I, I think of, um, I think it's St. John Henry Newman's, the image that he gives for the development of doctrine. And this idea of like, um, the revelation of God being this deposit of faith, this seed, which grows into a great tree, which is something less than infinite, but something so much bigger than a seed, right? You don't yeah. know where that seed's going to go. There's an organic connection. Like it's, it's, it's a living thing. It's connected to that deposit, but it goes so much beyond um, even a sapling, even a, to, to something great. Yeah. 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 And I think if we move from, I like that. I think the organic uh, images are useful for the development of doctrine and so on. But I I also sometimes wonder, what if we go to uh, from the organic to the personal? Um, again, a Christological move. Um, and, you know, like, when are you going to be done knowing your spouse? When are you going to be done knowing your children or your friends? When are you going, when are you going to be done knowing yourself? Is that just, is there just a day where, where okay, I got it. All right. Like I would go to my wife after this and say, "Hey, hey, actually, like I, I think I got you. Like we're done. Like, like I, <laughs> I know you. There's nothing else to know. That's a kind of an insult, <laughs> right? It's like, wait, what? You know, like because I think we fundamentally intuit. We experience every day interpersonally with those we love the most through love. We know that it would be actually offensive to presume that someone lovable, a person, could be could be finitely known and therefore exhaustively known i yeah. say exhaustively known so when paul says in first corinthians 13 12 that i will know him even as i am known that he's envisioning the highest levels also also in first corinthians right if i if i can fathom all mysteries and have not love i'm a resounding gong well the reason why is because the highest form of knowledge is the knowledge delivered by love and that's interpersonal, and it never ends. And you don't finish that. So I often have also wondered that, you know, like, 
that's really what we're getting at with scripture when some of the early fathers like Origen and Maximus say that the word incarnates himself in the word in the letters. And the word for Maximus incarnates himself in, say, the tradition in its various modes and in the saints and then the deified. And in you, he wants to be formed according to Galatians 4.4. 4. He want, uh, you know, Paul says to the Galatians, I am in, I am in pains until Christ be formed in you. And he's using gestation language. So Christ is to be born in us so that I can say, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, right? And uh, and he can say in Colossians, your, your life is hidden with Christ in God, so that when he shall be manifested, there you too will appear. Colossians 3, right? 1 through 5. Okay, so um, that, that kind of love, that is divinity. That is what makes the scriptures divine, and that's the, that's the character of the of the inspired word of God. It's the character of the inspiration. It's why I think Eve Congar says, right, that the subject of tradition ultimately is the Holy Spirit, and that's through time. He is, and what does the Holy Spirit do? I would add to this: the Holy Spirit does exactly what he did for the Mother of God. He brings the Word of God to to conception and birth. The Holy Spirit does that in us, in the tradition, in the church, the body of Christ, of course, in the Eucharist, certainly, right, in Scripture. If that's true, if all that's true, that doesn't have a limit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, man. Okay, so I had a list of prepared <laughs> questions, and I have my own questions that I want to ask now, so... Um, but we're actually like coming up on an hour. So we should have you on again because I have questions I want to ask. Um, I'm, uh, 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 yeah, anyways, I have lots of questions. But before we go, um, the one thing I do want to ask today uh, is uh, uh, you're a dad. You're a stay-at-home dad. You, you have four kids. Um, so I have five kids. My fifth was born a few months ago. Wow. Um, God bless you. <laughs> it's fun. Uh, it's wild. So the way that I understand and relate to God has changed since being married and since having kids. Um, even in uh, even in this conversation, the, the, the idea of like, I can never exhaustively know my wife. And she's someone I know more than anybody else. Um, but uh, there's been key experiences in... Uh, in being a parent um, that have helped me understand God more. So um, maybe most especially, uh, and I just went through this again a few months ago when my youngest was born. Um, uh, so I've been like in the, in the delivery room when all my kids were born. Yeah. Same. When I see my kid for the first time, um, it's like, I didn't know I could, I could love someone more than I love this person in front of me who I just met. Um, and it's not that I love them more than my other kids. It's like that my heart like grew to make room for another person, but not even just that. Like um, it's an experience of where like, I don't have a choice, but to love this person yes. in a way where I'm willing to sacrifice anything for them in an instant. Like all of that happens in an instant in the first minute that I see my child. And then I ask, and then I'm reminded, I'm not a better parent than God is. 
I do not love my kids more than God does. Um, so then in what way then does God look at me or any one of us? Um, so I guess as a theologian, how has being a father, how has being a parent impacted uh, the way you relate to God, the way you do theology? Wow. Uh, I couldn't really answer that well because the, the I guess the answer is it completely changes the way I, I mean it, it it's it permeates everything I do and think. Now I don't think it's simply a sentimental or a romantic move either because in Matthew chapter 7 at the end of the sermon on the mount Jesus explicitly bids us to compare the father his father which he taught just taught you to pray to our father in heaven. In the next chapter he says even you right though you are evil <laughs> even you though you're wicked if your child asks you for for a piece of bread would you hand them a scorpion right so too right when you he's talking about prayer when you go to pray to the to your father right how much more like you just said right he's a better father than we are how much more will he give you good you know good thanks to those who ask him so I know there's a Thomist line that wants to analogize all of our concepts and language about God and say, well, actually, you know, it's pretty dissimilar because God isn't naturally our parent. Well, I think the, the, the response to that is actually God is more fully our parent. Yeah. Um, Jesus came, according to the Gospel of John, to give us power to become sons and daughters of God. Ephesians says that all paternity is is named all paternity on earth is named after the father in heaven right and actually one of the great this is a deeper dogmatic point but it's very much important here the deeper intuition here and in call it in, in in the trinitarian controversies even of the early centuries is when we say that jesus christ has a father is that metaphorical or is that real is that true literal and so that's actually one way to think of the fight over the divinity of Christ. Is he fully God? It's not just like an abstract question. The question is really, is the father truly father? Because if he is, he has a, he needs to have a son. Otherwise, how could you otherwise you just mean something like he's the one source or something like vague? Yeah. But no, we we doubled down as Christians to know he has a son. So he is a father, right? And of course, there's qualifications, not like, you know, God is confined to a gender or something, but he he is put, he is a parental, we'll say. He is a true parent. And in, and in the son of God, we become adopted, sure. But ask anybody that has adopted kids, are they less kids? Are they less your kids because they're not? No, it's not natural in the sense of biologically, right? That relation wasn't acquired that way, but it's no less real. That's grace, by the way. Grace makes real what seems naturally impossible, including my affiliation to, to the Father in Christ. So um, anyway, so I so all that to, so like all of that's like theological, right? Rich ground to to say it's it's not just like oh I saw my kid and and I just decided that I'm going to bend everything around them and my love for them. All, but it's but it is to say more like what you were saying. When you did experience that in the, in the delivery room, that wasn't simply sentiment. That was truth. Yeah, it was very real. It was real. It was true. And, oh, wow, surprising. Once again, somehow through love, we have access to the highest truth. Um, 
sort of like maybe that's the way it can go. Of course, there's dangers there, but whatever. That's the truth. That is the truth. And um, so I am not afraid of making that comparison because the Lord Jesus Christ made that comparison and bid me to do that. Even in my own prayer life, I'm supposed to do that. And you can make as many distinctions as you want. You can try to talk about divine aseity and impassibility all you want. You can say God might not have created the world all you want. But I'm going to go with Dionysius, a church father, who says that the that God created us out of ecstatic love for us. And in his arrows, he was bedazzled by us. And he went out of himself and in the act of creation. I'm going to go with St. Maximus, who says God created. He says the saints, even of the Old Testament, saw that the only reason why God created was because he infinitely loved us. And he loves to be loved. He desires to be desired. He seeks to be sought. So it's the, just so I am I, not because I'm good. I'm, I'm I'm horrible, but because so it's not just that I'm created because um, it's not just that I am created and therefore I'm lovable to God. It's that I was lovable to God from eternity as the idea in his own mind. And therefore I was created as well. Both of those are true at once. And if you choose one or the other, you're basically just ignoring the truth of love that you should have access to as a parent, as a as a as a lover, right, and as a friend. And you should know that. You should know that our every act of love and experience, of love transcends all these conceptual era distinctions, which have their place, but they're not the whole. They can't get to the whole. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I think about um, uh, like I've reflected on that experience seeing my my kid for the first time and it's like it's like the grinch who the uh who stole christmas <laughs> like where his heart grew what or whatever yes right like it was almost a physical experience and it's not sentiment because right. you're right i reoriented my entire life to accommodate this person now <laughs> yeah. um the catechism in the section on prayer uses the word thirst to describe, you're talking about Maximus, God desires to be desired. The catechism uses the word thirst. Mm -hmm. And I love that word because it's so, um, <laughs> uh, it's so not godly. Like it's so like uh, earthy. Yes. Right. Um, it's so dependent. Yes. Because um, when I'm thirsty, I can't think of anything else. Like it consumes my thought. Like I have to get water. Right. Um. Yeah, there's something there's something about that where God invites us to use these really earthly things right. um, to relate to him. Taste and see that the Lord is good, right? And I'm like, what's the center of the mess? Literally physically doing that, right? And that's yeah, so I I don't know. I, I think we've we've really only begun to realize the, the degree to which divine love explodes our empty categories. Um, and it's not that they are dispensable. I think actually they're indispensable and they play a role. And there's a way in which you couldn't even discern their own transcendence unless you first saw them clearly. Again, almost like, again, the relationship between catechesis and, you know, and speculative theology is you, you do have to have those basic things there. You've got to see it. You've got to get the right definition and you've got to get the facts. But then just because you, you know. In fact, precisely because you grasp them, there's there's going to be more. Right? There's always going to be more. So, yeah, I don't. I think that's the sort of you know. Pope Francis is this video probably everyone's seen, 
with that little boy, you know, uh, whose father died and wasn't a believer. And yeah. he's so he's crying because he's afraid his father didn't go to heaven. And I think the most powerful moment after he goes up and whispers into the to the Pope's ear is when Pope Francis actually puts it to the crowd, you know, and he says, What do you think? Like, what do you think is what a good God, you know, he had his son baptized, right? There's a seed of faith in there somewhere, which is also an old patristic idea, by the way. But, um, you know, uh, there's a, there's an interpretation of Lazarus story where Lazarus is, you know, the fact that he wanted to help his, uh, his brothers not suffer this fate, mean there was still a little seed of virtue in him, like compassion. But anyway, so, right. It's like, um, he puts it to him in such a powerful moment. Cause, and then he, he doesn't just say, you know, what, what do you think is, you know, what could God neglect this father for this child and they say no and then he says louder you know that's what that's i think that's a perfect image for what we're talking about today it's like that is that's the courage and it's grounded in love and it's grounded in the faith that the content of our faith is infinite and and you and, and you and you address the world and that's what you say you tell me so there's a dialogue there but there's, but all of this is still, it's not just random. It's not indeterminate. It's not totally unmoored, whatever. That's all, that's all just, uh, that's all just a diversion. It's rooted in the truth, right? Which precisely as a person, the person of Christ can't be constrained. Yeah. Okay. So this is fantastic. And I wanted to ask you about uh, theosis. I wanted to ask you about grace and virtue. I want to ask you about universalism. <laughs> um, so we should have you on again. So I can <laughs> yeah. ask these questions. Um, but we have to wrap up. So where can people find you, follow you, buy your book, all that stuff? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. And thanks. Thanks again for having me on. It was, uh, it was good. Sorry. I kind of get a, you can tell I don't get out much. And uh, <laughs> so when someone gives me the mic, you know, I'm going to go, man. You know, when you spend a lot of hours every day talking to five-year-olds, it's nice to talk exactly. to adults. Oh, that's, exactly. that's why we created this show, this podcast. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. So uh, no. Um, yeah. So finding me, I don't, I don't know. I don't have like a, uh, you know, a really, I mean, I'm like on Twitter here and there I'm on um and I don't even think my handle's there, but just if you just Google Jordan Daniel Wood, my book is um, is um, Notre Dame University of Notre Dame Press. You can go on their site. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have a a go to. Yeah, yeah. I'm I follow you on Twitter and see you uh, arguing with Dominicans on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, it, it does get a little mundane when you're trying to take care of the four kids. And so, yeah, I got to go out and find a little excitement. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, awesome. Hey, hey, Dominic, do you have any questions before we wrap up? Oh, I think that was, uh, we just, I mean, we always whet our appetites bringing on these amazing guests and half of the questions that we didn't get to, I think would be, they're, they're just great questions. And they're, they're questions that I have because I can't, I lose sleep over them um, and I'm just scrubbing dishes mindlessly over and over and over again, just <laughs> chewing on them, you know? So there there's this renewal of catechesis and a renewal of, of, of our theology that is happening as, as these frontiers of knowledge are, are growing. So uh, friends who, who, if you enjoyed watching this show and if, if these kinds of questions, these kinds of conversations, if it sounds like you, first of all, please hit that like button. It helps more people discover this video. It helps the YouTube algorithm push out the video to uh, uh, others so they can hear more about 
Jordan Daniel Wood and, and the Pope Francis generation. Again, if you're enjoying these conversations, we'd absolutely love to meet you and uh, hang out. Come and join Paul and myself in Smart Catholics. It's the free online community for Catholic millennials, creators, and learners who want faithful conversations, unafraid of doubts and questions. Plus, we're free of trolls and ads and toxicity. Join us at smartcatholics.com. Also, if, if you like this podcast and want to go deeper with, with the different topics we're discussing, um, you can check out my new project, which is Father's Heart Academy. Uh, it's a community for folks looking for more compelling answers to their questions about Catholic teaching, um, who are tired of online apologists and clerics distorting what the church teaches with their own opinions, and who want a more beautiful gospel. Um, Father's Heart Academy shares church teaching in light of the kerygma, um, God's goodness and desire for us, and the doctrine of theosis. So uh, we're going to walk through the church's documents themselves and read what they say in their own words. We're going to hold workshops this year on the Pope's new document on the liturgy, his document on holiness, and also Fratelli Tutti. Um, yeah, Dominic, go from there. <laughs> sure. So these are these are going to be paid workshops that are open for everyone. And members of this academy, it's within Smart Catholics that Paul and I are collaborating on. You get special... Um, access and benefits. You join a private group of learners who are interested in discussing these topics. You get the chance to meet with Paul regularly and discuss recent podcasts like this one or current events in the church, which just never stop. And we're holding seminars on specific topics, magisterial documents. And then there's also members only deep discounts to the workshops that Paul is hosting. The goal is to help um, people understand what the church actually teaches so we can grow in our relationship with God um, and our love for him. So you can join us at fathersheartacademy.com. Perfect. Paul, if uh, our friends have a question or feedback for this podcast, where can they go? Yeah, the host site for this podcast is popefrancisgeneration.com. Till next time, friends. Thank you, Jordan, for joining us. It was wonderful. We look forward to having you back. Friends, say a short prayer for yourself and for us. And remember, don't be afraid to ask questions. Doubts can be a sign that we want to know God better and more deeply. God bless you.